Friends, so glad you're watching this. Uh, very happy to be hosting Mr. Kenneth Feinberg on Plain Spoken today. If you don't know that name, you should. Uh, he played a big role in the United Methodist Church in 2019 whenever Bishop Yambasu uh, was able to connect with him and facilitate a very impressive uh, series of negotiations over the period of three or four months in 2019, which resulted in what is commonly called the Protocol. The protocol was signed onto by all constituencies that were a part of it. There was far left, far right, and centrist all a part of it. Nobody thought it could be done. Ever since 2012, it was very clear that things were going in a bad direction and that peace was almost impossible. Somehow, Kenneth Feinberg managed to get all the parties at the table and agree on several specific provisions for an amicable separation. The protocol is still going to be presented at April's general conference, uh, but it's considered dead on arrival. And that's really quite a tragedy because, as Bishop Tom Bickerton said, there, quote, there is not a price tag you could put on what Mr. Feinberg has done for us. Um, it, was, it was something bordering on a miracle whenever it happened, and it's something that uh, we should not be content to let disappear unless absolutely necessary. All cards on the table, I'm now Global Methodist. I Once, once the uh, progressive parties reneged on the protocol, I thought the writing was on the wall, and thinking for me and my churches, I, I, I left. But that's not to say that I've given up on the United Methodist Church. I have a heart of peace. I'm hoping that hearts of peace prevail this April, and it's for that reason that I contacted Mr. Feinberg, and he very graciously agreed to give me 45 minutes today, which I've already uh, filled up with a lot of stuff. I've already talked about what he's done for the United Methodist Church, but Mr. Feinberg is is a big deal. He was a big deal whenever he uh, started working with the United Methodist Church. He's one of the nation's leading experts in mediation and alternative dispute resolution. He has been appointed to administer numerous high-profile compensation programs, having served as a special, mem uh, uh, a special master of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. He was appointed by uh, President George Bush at the time. TARP Executive Compensation and the Agent Orange Victim Compensation Program. He was appointed by the administration of Barack Obama to serve as administrator of the Gulf Coast Claims Facility to compensate victims of the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. He also served as an administrator of the Aurora Victim Relief Fund following Aurora, Colorado shootings in 2012. He is an administrator of Virginia Tech Hokie Spirit Memorial Fund in 2007. He served as an administrator of the One Fund Boston Victim Relief Fund. You're just a piece of American history. There's This is so long, and if you want a full bio, I'll, I will put uh, Mr. Feinberg's full bio on this, but I, I'm just at this point, it's just so much recent American history is wrapped up around Mr. Feinberg. I, I feel silly even continuing to talk when, when I can have you talking. So I, I'm just going to go ahead and welcome you. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you feeling today? I haven't even asked you yet. I'm feeling fine. Uh, I actually uh, quickly accepted your invitation because I felt you talk about American history, it would be a shame if people weren't reminded about that window of opportunity that we had in 2019 to try and forge some sort of agreement. And the opportunity uh, to sort of relay and remind everybody about that history is something that I think is in the public interest. 
I couldn't agree more. And as I recall, I remember reading lots of interviews with you at the time, just trying to figure out who you were and why you stepped in. Um, it's worth remembering that you didn't ask for a penny in arranging all of this. It seems it seemed to me and, and to a lot of observers that you had just been aware of the the coming acrimony and you really wanted to just out of a heart of generosity get out ahead of it and and do your part to help american social fabric hold together did i understand your heart correctly no that that's correct i knew about the dispute and i knew that in the public interest it ought to be resolved and if i was seeking compensation as the mediator that would put um uh, the wrong message up on the screen I thought that as a, an American citizen, an American citizen of the Jewish faith, mm -hmm. to try and help uh, Methodist groups, individuals, different um, uh, alignments, if I could try and bridge differences and get them together, I thought that would be very much in the public interest. Well, and it still could be. I, I know there are a lot of people talking as though this dream is dead. But uh, it seemed to me that you were able to achieve something that it doesn't have to be a foregone conclusion that it's it's over. Um, just for those who are not as familiar with it, I mean, I, I have a lot more to learn about what actually happened. I spent a lot of time trying to reconstruct. I, I came up with a basic timeline for what happened. Uh, between August and December of 2019, Bishop Yambasu of Sierra Leone Annual Conference, he contacted you or you guys somehow got in contact and hosted a series of conversations, uh, three or four, with the help of uh, two other individuals from another law firm, Wendy and Rick, I think were their names. And um, you were able to get them together and hammer out all these different provisions. And on January 30th of 2020, y'all got a, a big uh, group of people who had signed the protocol, many bishops and caucus leaders, and did a live stream, which was a fantastic live stream. It's the best thing I've ever seen UM News do, actually. Um, everybody was on board and committed to it, um, but then COVID-19 happened. Uh, May was when the general conference was supposed to happen to approve the protocol, but it got postponed till 2021, and then again till 2022, and then again, finally, to 2024. Now, it was at that point that um, it was, so March 3rd, 2022 was when they postponed for the last time. Uh, and then it was May 1st after that that the conservatives split off and started the Global Methodist Church um, because they already saw that the writing was on the wall. But it was following that in June that progressives and centrist leadership repudiated the protocol. Many of the original signers, Thomas Berlin, Egmedio Aquilia, uh, Janet Lawrence, David Meredith, Randall Miller, Mark Holland, David Livingston, all said they were no longer committed to it at all. And from that point on, it's been considered dead in the water. Uh, conservatives have exercised the one provision for disaffiliation since then. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but almost it, it would seem a third of the churches that were in uh, the United Methodist Church in 2019 have now left. So there have been so many developments between then and now. I've only hit on a few of them. But I, I wonder, before we get into, I, I reached out to people smarter than me and asked for some of their questions. I wonder, as I rehearse that history, what reflections you have on all that? Do you think that it was inevitable, or do you think things could have gone a different way? Uh, what wisdom do you have to share? Well, I can tell you a few things. First of all, when we sat down 
for the very first mediation session. I explained to about 16 people that were around the table representing all different views. Look, if we're going to mediate, if we're going to try and resolve differences, you have to be flexible. The good, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Let's try and get it done. And am I correct? I asked this question in the very first meeting. Do you all have authority to speak for the church? If you don't have authority, we can't get very far because unless you can deliver on what we work out, this is all a waste of time. And I went around the table and I remember everyone said, we're here in good faith. We want to try and resolve dogma differences, institutional governance differences, financial differences involving property and assets. It's all on the table and we all have authority. We can't guarantee anything. We're not here officially um, uh, with all power to say yes, but we have authority, we've talked to our constituencies. Once we got the green light to speak in candor, in confidence, knowing that we had each other's back, trying to come up with a protocol, it went very, very smoothly. And I must say, I was extremely impressed with the people around the table from America, North America, Africa, Europe, we had an international constituency at the table dealing with different issues and how they might be resolved. And everybody in good faith, uh, everybody was, was confident that if he could get agreement around the table, that would go a long way to getting agreement around the world. Mm. Well, and, and you were successful in doing that, and I, I watched three quarters of that live stream that, that your crew did, and they said the, the most difficult vote to take, or uh, line to come up with, was the percentage by which an annual conference would have to vote in order to disaffiliate as a whole. Conservatives wanted 50% plus one, uh, progressives wanted a uh, two-thirds vote, the compromise was 57. You came up with that in a genius move of uh, dividing two numbers in half. So um, right. that, we really took a lot of creativity, right? <laughs> but uh, you but know, you see, but you see, but you see, that single issue, mm -hmm. we came up with a split in the differences, mm -hmm. 60, 50, 57, is a perfect example of why everybody around that table wanted to see it succeed. Everybody saw that the perfect won't work here. We've got to be willing to compromise in the interest of the church. And that's a good example of compromise. It was, and it was, it was such an encouraging thing to see, which was why it was so discouraging whenever the, the progressive faction backed off from that. Of course, you've had a life that exists outside of all of this, and I, I don't know how much you followed along with these developments over time, but do you have any thoughts on what the forces were at play that, that made progressives back off and centrists back off from their commitment? I don't have the details, but I will tell you this. In mediation, when you reach some sort of tentative agreement, 
Mm-hmm. Momentum is key. It's critical. And I think probably what happened here, we reached the high point of success, a protocol. Mm-hmm. From the time we reached that success until uh, subsequent events sort of undercut our progress, time was against us. Mother Nature was against us in terms of COVID that stalled everything. In mediation, when you reach some sort of agreement, you got to move fast to, to make mm-hmm. it real, to mm-hmm. formalize it, to finalize it. And I think what hurt us more than anything was delay, delay, that resulted in second-guessing, maybe it's a mistake, we lost momentum, the mediator is gone, mm-hmm. some of the very people who were critical in our initial success died, were no longer active, passed away or retired. When we lost that critical core of participants, Mm -hmm. that accelerated the problem. I wonder, I've I've actually got a friend texting me right now that I'd reached out to, and he one of the justifications that progressives used for backing off from the agreement or reneging the agreement was uh, because the Global Methodist Church had already started. I remember there were provisions uh, from all parties saying that they would not do certain things in in the intermediate time. One was uh, not prosecuting, um, oh, there was a word for it, but not prosecuting people who violated the sexual ethics of, of the denomination. Do you agree that uh, the formation of the Global Methodist Church was a violation of the original terms of the protocol, or do you think that that, that really shouldn't have impacted whether or not progressives were? Oh, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, I have no opinion on that. I don't recall it. Uh, I don't recall uh, labeling one-wing progressive or conservative in terms of implementation of the deal. Okay. And whether that was an, uh, a critical failure of the protocol, namely the, the, the church, the global mm-hmm. church. I can't speak to that. I really don't know. I just recall that at the time when we finished our work, uh, there was unanimity you know, around the table. But I can't really get into second-guessing what happened thereafter. I wasn't involved. So you're speaking from um, a, a perspective where you've worked with many, many groups of people achieving a consensus agreement. Um, that's a perspective you're able to offer is one who knows all the norms of, of humans in these kind of scenarios, especially in American context. How, how normal is it that once an agreement is reached that one party reneges? It's not normal at all. Okay, so you this know, was an exceptional situation. Once, once, once the parties get to yes, mm-hmm. exhausted, shake hands, we finally did it. It is rare. It's not unique. It's not unique that it failed subsequently, but it's relatively rare. And I tie the failure here to the extent that the protocol is dead. I tie the failure more to delay. Mm-hmm. COVID, the death of some very important participants, including the bishop from Africa at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I I look to that structural defect 
more than substance as a reason for it to fail. Interesting. Yeah, there... Mm. If we had been able... I, I was prepared to defend the protocol a few months after it was uh, achieved. Mm-hmm. I was prepared to go to the, uh, to the international uh, meeting of the church mm-hmm. and to defend it. And unfortunately, uh, we know what happened in terms of delay, as you pointed out, mm-hmm. and I never got that chance. A well, so, well, in April, they, the, the protocol is still being presented, and then there's amended versions of it as well that are being presented, but would I be right in understanding that you won't be there to defend it? I won't be there. In fact, um, once we signed on mm-hmm. on the protocol, once we agreed, um, I uh, thanked everybody for their service, and I left, and I have not had anything to do from that glorious day. I've had nothing to do with this since. I recall that all parties to the negotiation, it was very fragile, progressives, conservatives, etc. It was fragile. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, the people around the table had a vested interest in trying to get this done, and uh, we did. After that, I've lost touch, really, with the whole operation. Is that an exceptional uh, reality amid all the other negotiations that you've done that that people just... I would put that as they ghosted you after that. Does that sound like a a reasonable characterization, and and is that exceptional, or is it normal for parties to... Oh, no. Once once the deal is reached, once everybody signs off on the dotted line, Mm -hmm. the mediator, neutral, detached has no um, further interest, has an interest, but has no further role to play Mm -hmm. in implementing the deal. I was prepared to attend the session in April um, and support it, Mm -hmm. but of course, Mother Nature intervened. So the the way it was set up was very wise. You had equal parts, traditionalists and progressive at the table among many other institutional centrists entities. I would say most of them leaned pretty far left as well. But even so, of the explicitly progressive members, you had five. Of the explicitly traditionalist members, you had five. And then you had many uh, centrist, both American and non-American. That was critical. What's very critical in any mediation, balance. Right. Balance. You've got people of differing views coming together in good faith. Uh, The critical point here was the sophistication and the flexibility of everybody around the table. People were selected to participate in this mediation with great care. We need people who will work with the mediator to try and forge an agreement. And uh, fortunately, as in any mediation, I had the right people at the table, the right people. Yes. They wanted to get it done. Well, and, and for obvious reasons, you can't talk about individual persons or anything uh, that was said in the group. But I do wonder, um, when you look at the, the traditional group and the progressive group and the centrist group, did, did all parties, you, you've made clear they all participated in good faith and were earnest in their participation, did did all parties seem equally prepared for the conversation? Were they all equally professional in their conduct and, and ready to, to, to talk in an adult fashion? Yes, and, and, and I'll tell you who, I can't name names, but I must mention one name, mm-hmm. uh, Rick Godfrey, 
a lawyer in Chicago mm -hmm. uh, who was instrumental in assisting the mediator line up the right people and his colleague, Wendy, forget her last name, but Wendy and Rick mm -hmm. were the two people who helped me set up the structure of the process. And they did it by singling out for participation people who we all felt would bring substance, mm -hmm. credibility, and flexibility to the mediation process. And I was very fortunate to have those people around the table participating. It really was a, a remarkable thing. And I, I feel, you know, we've already talked around some stuff. I, I just think it's useful to, to retread the ground succinctly. Um, what, what happened in the, re, the backing off from the protocol, although it's rare, it's not unheard of. Did I hear that correctly? That's correct. It's not unheard of. Okay, okay. And then you donated your time. You spent a lot of time and energy on this. Do you have any personal feelings about it falling apart, or have you been able to just kind of say, well, that's just how the cookie crumbles? I think the latter. I mean, I don't blame anybody for it falling apart, other than perhaps Mother Nature. Mm. I think that had we had the opportunity to build on the momentum, mm -hmm. you may recall when we reached a deal, it was highly publicized yes. as a very positive development. Yes. And I think what happened here, as momentum was lost, as people began picking at it, this provision, that provision, second guessing, mm -hmm. uh, why did you yield on that point? Why didn't you be more forceful on that point? Mm -hmm. The common denominator switched from consensus mm -hmm. to picking apart this section or that section, and that's the beginning of the end of a successful mediated uh, fragile protocol. I wonder, and that all makes sense to me, they're just human dynamics at play. But of all these different um, dynamics and things that have shifted, it seems to me that nothing has really changed in the substance of either the prom problem or the solution presented in the protocol. It, it seems to me that there's just been a lot of uh, mud thrown in the water. But it seems to me that the protocol is still uh, in its drive for an amicable resolution, respectfulness along the way, and um, a, a final goodbye. The the terms that you established still seem quite reasonable and laudable to me. And so I've been of the mind that it should still be the favored proposal going forward. Does that seem uh, a bit Pollyanna-ish to you, or do you think that, that that really is how it should be? If, I, if somebody said to me mm -hmm. today, not two or three years ago, today, Ken, you were the mediator. Do you have any suggestions in revitalizing that protocol, mm -hmm. I would say basically imply, implicit in what you just said. That should remain, as far as I can tell, the basic structure. Now, events may have overtaken us. Mm -hmm. There may have been changes in the church. Mm -hmm. A very forceful bishop from Africa was instrumental in this, in this settlement. Mm -hmm. Excellent. A real... Um, a real thinker about how to do this, mm -hmm. I would say rather than blow up the protocol and go back to square one, 
Why not take the protocol? Maybe events now require amendment. Certain changes, the financial formula, for example, may be outdated. There may be other considerations. Why not reactivate the mediation? Mm -hmm. Mediation two, following up on mediation one. Here's mediation one, here's the protocol. Well, we need to amend it. It needs to be changed. Bring together another strong group, consensus group, credible, sophisticated people. Mm. Some may be the same, maybe new membership. Mm -hmm. Let's try again. Pick up where we left off. I think there's probably a very good chance that if you had the right people at the table, we could amend the protocol and reactivate it. It's so uh, I love hearing you talk about it because you're on the outside, right? You're not a United Methodist. And so we, we on the inside, well, I'm now on the out. I'm the GMC, but I'm still in that realm. You just get very insular and um, everything seems so big and real. And we lose that perspective of looking at other groups and other natural human dynamics. There is no reason why hearts of peace cannot yet still prevail. Um, we live in a very fractured and, and uh, tendentious time, but that doesn't mean that United Methodists have to be subject to that. Uh, does it seem realistic to you to be hopeful that hearts of peace could prevail this April? Yes, I do. And there's two formulaic variables here. One, does everybody agree? that it would be good in the public interest, in the church interest, to reactivate the process. Maybe we have to change a good part of the protocol. Mm -hmm. Maybe events have overtaken us, but does everybody commit to making the effort? And then second, I've mentioned this earlier, critically important. Well, if we're going to go forward, do we have the right people at the table with the credibility and the reputation to help forge a new a, a new agreement. Mm -hmm. And um, um, I recall at the time when I got a call from Rick Godfrey about doing this, it followed in the wake of a recommendation from a very important member of the church, Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton was also instrumental in let's try this, let's try and sit down and work it out. I'm sure she feels the same way today. And um, how did I never read this? Two components. Hillary Clinton was instrumental in getting the protocol team together. She was instrumental in setting up the process. Really? She was instrumental in getting me involved. Hillary to Rick Godfrey and Wendy to me. Outreach. No, no, she was behind the scenes at the time, quite instrumental, in, in, in not in the protocol, in getting the mediation process going. I hear you. Yeah. I, I'm just very surprised I hadn't heard that before. And, of course, I knew yes. that she had associated herself with the United Methodist Church. I was not at all aware that oh. she had uh, she, called on you. She, she told Rick Godfrey... We ought to mediate this. Get a hold of Ken Feinberg. I know Ken Feinberg from 9-11 and other matters when she was a U.S. Senator from New York. And she was, no, she was instrumental, frankly, Wow. in getting the process, the process up and running, not the substance. Sure. No, I hear you. I do. I do. I, so here, here's how I've, I've kind of I, I, I put together a couple clips 
that I'm not going to be able to show to you. But um, Seinfeld, of course, was a popular TV show when I was a kid. And I, I remembered an episode where um, Kramer and Seinfeld made a bet. Kramer was going to build levels in his apartment, and Seinfeld bet him that he wouldn't. And then a little bit later, Kramer agreed, no, I'm not going to do it, so the bet's off. And Seinfeld says, no, that's not the nature of a bet. Uh, the bet is that you wouldn't do it, and you're not going to do it, so pay up. And the other clip I had was uh, Jerry Seinfeld showing up to, to pick up a car that he'd made a reservation at at a, a car rental place. And they said, we have the reservation, but we don't have the car. And he says, anyone can take a reservation. The important thing is to hold the reservation. And in both of these scenarios, Jerry is the one holding to a, a, a contract with an unfaithful contract uh, participant. They, they both agreed on the front end that there would be certain services rendered and then one party reneged, and you're frustrated rightly with, with Jerry. That's how I have felt with respect to progressives pulling out of their commitment to the protocol. What I'm hearing you say today is, is correcting me a bit. You're, you're giving me the impression that though it's rare, it's not unheard of, and that they, they might not even be uh, uh, to blame in that. There might just be forces that made this unavoidable you're not bitter about it you're not thinking that they participated in bad faith you're just thinking that that things changed and this is just how things are now that's right and i would ask anybody who takes the position today mm -hmm. that the protocol is dead and buried thank goodness it never was enacted and we're much better off i say to anybody who takes that position fine but what's the alternative mm -hmm. you know it was the breakup of the church that brought us together in the first place mm -hmm. now if you're going to throw the protocol out not even call for its amendment not even call for reconstituting a group to mediate mm -hmm. but instead it's over and done with let's move on well mm -hmm. what's the alternative in terms of financial What's the alternative in terms of uh, schism, dogmatic schism? What's the alternative in terms of local reaction? Uh, one thing I learned about your church is there's no, there's no uniformity. There's a lot of local input. It is, a, in a way, a populist movement where people at the local level, at the local regional level, have a real say in how their church in their locality, whether it's Idaho or Massachusetts, how they will um, go forward. So people better think about the alternative if the protocol is dead and buried and there's no process for reevaluating and rethinking some sort of agreement. So let me tell you a little bit about what's transpired since the, the support for the protocol fell apart. This provision that was enacted in the 2019 General Conference, paragraph 2553, was uh, suddenly approach, approached with vigor by those who wanted out. They had been holding out for the protocol to provide for an amicable separation. Suddenly that became a fiction. So a lot of people started running for the doors. In some of the annual conferences, that was made virtually impossible because they added all kinds of uh, fees and, and complications to it. Other conferences almost facilitated it, not quite, but they, they covered some of those fees with conference reserves. Um, the, at the end of the day, right now, even though that 
that provision has uh, expired. In South Carolina and perhaps other conferences, they're continuing to let some churches uh, disaffiliate through another provision where they actually close the church down and sell it back to them. It's about as expensive usually. Um, but the result is that they've lost fully a third of their churches, not, well, almost a third of their churches since 2019. And I suspect that there is another uh, 10% that would have really wanted out had they been able to navigate things. So what they're looking at is entrapping 10% of very unhappy churches, having another probably 20% that never really even knew what was going on. They, they didn't get sucked into it. But once things continue to drift left, they're going to be very uncomfortable and unhappy. My understanding is if, if they, well, there are caucus groups. Well, Mark Holland was one of the people who participated in this agreement. He heads up uh, mainstream UMC. He has publicly said, no more disaffiliation, no provision for exit. If somebody wants to leave, they can leave all of their church assets. And um, the, the approach now seems to be for institutionalists to hold on to everything that they've got, to chase people out who are not on board, and to liquidate their assets to keep the body afloat. To you, does that seem like a viable um, and, and uh, <laughs> worthy strategy as an institution? I, again, I'm not uh, involved in the day-to-day -day evaluation of steps like that. Okay. I would say this, though. I would say that if one side or one group is determined to um, blow up the protocol and impose its will on others, yes. that is anathema to me in terms of trying to reach a, an acceptable accord, an agreement. And I'd be wary if uh, somebody came to me and said, Ken, uh, we want you to again mediate. We want you to again come to the table and try and bring people together. I would ask a few questions. Is there anything to mediate or is one side, whoever that might be, A, events B, determined? to roll over the other side through force, power, political power, uh, I would say there's no point in mediating. The first time around, everybody agreed, let's try and reach an accommodation here that is good, if not perfect. Yeah, well, and yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. There are still some very, Rob Renfro, uh, who was part of the conversation, he's still within the United Methodist Church. There's another gentleman, uh, Tom Lambrecht, who is still United Methodist and working to, to elevate central uh, non-American voices. So uh, I, I wonder at, you know, at this point, I don't know that anyone has even seriously considered reconvening another group to attempt to do the same thing. But it, it might be worth asking if there might be another bishop who has a heart of peace that would be willing to put his name on the line um, to facilitate In such a thing. Words, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right, Jeffrey. In other words, is there an individual or a group in the church with credibility who would say, look, so much effort went into this protocol. Let's convene another group to try and amend it or work it out. If we fail, we fail. It, it, we may not succeed. Isn't it worth trying? But you'd have to get buy-in from all different types and who should be at the table. Last time we had a very good working group where people were credible. And how did you know they were credible? We knew it because 
the progressives listened very carefully to the more conservative members of the group. The conservatives appreciated the credibility of the people around the table. The bishop from Africa, very, very um, helpful in expressing the view that we've got to get this resolved. So we had the right people, and that's key to mediation. The right people are at the table. Yeah, it's uh, so many of these organizations have already shifted to uh, the Institute for Religion and Democracy is already closing up its United Methodist wing and, and uh, people that were working on that or finding employment other uh, places. It, it feels to Maybe me and late, to many, yeah. it feels as though Maybe a lot of things late. have fallen apart. And that's, that's really um, regrettable because uh, I remember that moment of hope when it looked like we were going to be able uh, you know, the, the Presbyterians had a split and they didn't do well. The Episcopalians had a split. They didn't do well. Lutherans had a split. They didn't do well. It looked like the Methodists were actually going to do a good job. And then um, there was some force, a series of forces in the mix that just couldn't let that happen. And part of it was, was COVID, but even, oh, I, I could, I could get into the, it wouldn't be fun to get into the weeds. For now, my, my thought has been, is there any role to play in softening hearts for the next general conference, or are we going to continue to see a, a hard-hearted approach and, and uh, blatant power politics? And you're it's asking, really hard to know. You're asking the right question. You're asking the right question. That's right. There, there, there are not just uh, American churches trapped in, but there are... Uh, they allowed no non-American churches to exit for reasons that have to do with uh, ex strange language on the floor of General Conference. So that's that's where my heart is. Is uh, I, I think it would be a real tragedy to have a denomination that is full of people that really don't want to be there but are forced to for uh, because they're willing to wield this legal stick through this trust clause. Um, are you at all familiar with? Organizations that have tried to exist that way, not as a coalition of the willing, but uh, using something like the trust clause to compel everyone to, to stay in the mix. Is that a very common oh, phenomenon? Oh, that's very common. Okay. I see that all the time. It doesn't have to be formal religious organizations. Mm -hmm. I see all the time mediation where everybody on one side may represent thousands of individuals. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the question is, can we come up with some sort of resolution that will benefit everyone without a certain group succeeding 100%, but mm -hmm. it's better than the alternative. And that happens quite frequently in mass mediation involving hundreds or even thousands of individuals. Is it So I'm, I'm wondering if there might be some institutionalists who watch this and go, well, to hear Feinberg talk about it, um, it sounds like some organizations really do rule by the, a fist of power and they compel people into conformity. And heck, we might be able to keep this thing afloat by liquidating the assets of churches with high real estate values and, and chasing people out that are just not on board. Um, whenever I spoke to this earlier, um, I, I didn't hear you correct that. So, well, I did hear some language saying that that really isn't ideal. Is there anything about the long-term viability of organizations that operate by a coercive principle that makes it a bad long-term strategy? No, no, I okay. can't speak in generalities. There are situations, but I'll tell you this. Okay. 
It's very rare that I mediate in a situation where one side has all the power. Why do they want to mediate if that's the case? Right. If, 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 the, if the balance is uneven at the outset, mm-hmm. well, what can I do? I mean, I was lucky in the Methodist mediation because the, 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 the power was diffuse. It was, there were people on all sides, all countries, who saw the wisdom of trying to avoid Armageddon. Mm-hmm. And if now the, 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 um, the scenario has changed and mediation will just be an opportunity for one side to demand or ratify or um, not take into account a balanced view. I'm not interested. I want people at the table who really want to see it get resolved in a more equitable and in a more um, less polarizing way. Mm-hmm. And that's where I would get involved. Well, I think that's that's a good final reflection. And of course, I only had you commit to 45 minutes and we're coming up on that. So I, I appreciate you bearing with me you know, we're coming at this from very different social locations, and, and of course, I'm not an expert at this, and, and I really, I needed your perspective, to be honest with you, because I think, well, it, my perspective was very different from what you've offered here today, so I'm going to be ruminating on this for a while as I uh, continue to try and play a peacemaking role uh, myself, but one thing I did want to make sure that I said to you, um, and I'm sure many people have said it to you other places, was just, I really appreciated the way that you stepped in and did what you did for people. You didn't have any dog in that fight, and it was just really a, a very impressive show of concern for others that um, was not lost on me. So I've personally been disappointed that that it doesn't look like it's going to bear fruit in the way that it was intended to. Um, part of me is happy that you're not upset, and then part of me is wishing you were upset, you know, but um, regardless, there's nothing but appreciation from me, and, and several of the people I reached out to said, convey our, our deep respect and appreciation uh, for Mr. Feinberg. You, you really did us a big solid, and, and we might not have any way to repay you, but God sees, and, and that matters. Well, thank you very much. I grew up not in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Massachusetts. And when I was a teenager, uh, the White House was occupied by President Kennedy. And President Kennedy said something when he was president that I never forgot. And that is, every single individual can make a difference. I've tried to make a difference. I hope the church can work out its disagreements. Mm -hmm. I thank you for the opportunity to reflect on that moment in time when we did seem to have a good consensus. And who knows, let's see what happens with people like you working on it. It may may still bear fruit. Yeah, yeah, we'll be hopeful together. So, Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Friends, thanks for joining us. I, I hope this has been equally enlightening for you. If you've enjoyed it, make sure to share it with others and, and share your comments on how you receive all this, and, and I'll see you next time.